It's exciting to be able to come together and to sing songs like we've just sung tonight. The opportunity to praise and to express the heartfelt adoration that we each, of course, experience toward God. And certainly as we're assembled and gathered on this occasion, we celebrate for uh, certainly the rebaptism that occurred today and the other obediences that you and I have seen in a public way in recent days. We're just so thrilled that the Word of God still has the power to touch the lives of individuals. It still is true, isn't it, from Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Tonight, as we come to a consideration of a few moments tonight, I hope that you'll keep your Bible open to 1 John. That particular book will be the focus of much of our discussion this evening, the little five-chapter book of 1 John. You may have noted a moment ago that a, a, a small portion of that book was read, chapter 1, verse 7. We shall look at a number of other passages over the course of the lesson this evening. Might I, in fact, initially suggest that the Word of God itself is filled with promises. We find many of them, of course, etched within the pages of the Old Testament, but yea, it seems so many so penetrating for you and me are found within the pages of the New Testament. And as you and I think about those promises that God has delivered to us, they stir our hearts in many ways. They are promises that fill us with hope and encouragement. They're promises that set before us regardless of the allotment of the day and the problems that may be said. There's a brighter day that dawns for those that love the Lord and those whose life is based upon His teaching and their hope and confidence is, of course, fully surrounded in Him. No wonder in light of those things, we appreciate also those same promises are not only greatly encouraging to the faithful, by the same token, they should bring a note of warning to the unfaithful, to those that are disobedient. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 is a passage that was read just a moment ago. And in that passage is a, is a tremendous promise. I would invite us to think about that promise tonight. In fact, develop an entire lesson around just one of the statements found in that one verse. That particular passage is one that you and I will consider, and I'd like to build up to it somewhat slowly. As we do that on the next slide, we'll do that like this. The book of 1 John is in many ways a very interesting little book. I'm sure all of us would readily affirm that all the Bible books are interesting, be they within the Old Testament or be they within the New, but the interest that you and I seemingly readily find in 1 John might be quickly summarized as follows. The book, for one thing, is very short. Five chapters... As you can well tell, only a little over a hundred verses. The whole book could be read very, very swiftly. But the problem is, we, as we read through it, we readily encounter the fact that there appear to be themes that butt heads, if you please. They're converse in their nature. You and I would readily agree that one of those particular features, one matter that seemingly rises to the top so often in this book, is stated very clearly in 1 John 4, 8, but it's found in many ways as the backdrop to so many other passages in the book. God is love. John's often called the apostle of love. And time and again in this book, we see that the love of God, the matter of that love and what it means is so often an issue that John directly uses to teach us something so dramatic. Given that that's one theme, though, notice the other one that seemingly appears so frequently, not only either stated directly, but again as a matter of great import. 
It's the fact that we are sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. Now, how does one reconcile man the sinner to God the lover? How does one, in fact, bring one back to the other one, namely man who is the sinner back to the righteous, perfect, loving God? The way in which that reconciliation is made, as you and I know, is not left to be something terribly easy. It took the great initiative of the Son of God to make that happen at Calvary. This book is a dissertation, if you please, in five chapters of how do you get man the sinner reconciled to God the lover. As we think about that, there are a great number of blessings that come our way because of that marvelous reconciliation. I would ask you to notice in particular, when John wrote the book, it's easy to tell that there were a number of errors and issues that were causing problems in the first century church. Some of these had to do with knowledge, the Gnostic heresy, Gnosticism as it is sometimes called. And that really is the way John hits the ground in chapter 1 verse 1, addressing those problems and concerns because in so doing, that will lead to a false faith if you have an improper consideration of the knowledge correctly delivered by the God of heaven. But there's in fact another problem. Not only is there Gnosticism, you can appreciate immediately the fleshly nature of Jesus. Some were denying it. Some were having issues and problems with wrestling with, did Jesus really come in the flesh? May I submit to you that if He didn't, then how can He fully understand the problems and temptations you and I face if He never bore anything like it? But yet the Hebrew writer quickly tells us he never ever sinned despite the fact he has been tempted in all points like as we are. Every temptation you and I ever face, he faced something like it. And he overcame it, never once succumbing to it, never once falling prey to it. He victoriously emerged triumphant over it. Maybe it's in light of that Paul, or rather John, had to address these matters and put them to rest quickly so that individuals could know the fullness of faith that could be had through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is with that in mind we now come to the text of our lesson tonight. For having seen some of the issues that John was facing, and he was encouraging them to readily understand, we now notice in verse number 5 of chapter 1 that the following statement is found. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And immediately we notice that John uses this amazing truth to highlight a remarkable, a remarkable matter. On the one hand there's light and on the other hand there's darkness. And you and I understand that light dispels darkness. Where there's light there can be no ultimate darkness. And he quickly informs us that when it comes to matters spiritual, God is light. God is light. And in him, verse number 5, is no darkness at all. It's not that there is tolerated a small amount of light or that there is a minimal amount of light with him. There is none. No darkness with God. He is the fullness, the thoroughness, the greatness, if you please, of what light is and what light can do. It is with that that verse number 6 then comes to the next conclusion. We've just learned then about this nature of God that He is light. I suppose that you and I, as we of course one day enter that great place of heaven, we'll be able to talk with Him about the nature 
of the science of light. And we'll be able to discuss with him the intricacies of it and how useful and great it is. But at its most basic nature, it is still something that scientists use to help us teach incredible matters. Notice what's next. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. After just asserting that God is light and that there is no darkness with him, this matter now follows. If we say, if any one of us makes the statement that we have fellowship with God, an individual who claims, I have fellowship with God, an individual who makes the assertion, the proclamation, I am in fellowship with Him, and that same person walks in darkness. We have a statement from the pen of the Apostle John. John says that person's a liar. That person has not told the truth. He is deceived. Maybe he is, quite frankly, just an absolute liar in the sense that he knows he's not in fellowship with God, but he claims it. Be that as it may, he said, that person is lying. And furthermore, the truth is not in him. He doesn't do the truth. That's a strong statement, wouldn't you agree? We have here before us one of the litmus tests that this book so frequently presents to us. How do you and I know if a person has fellowship with God? Does he do the truth or not? That's one of the ways we know. If he does the truth, he is then possibly in fellowship with God. But if he doesn't, though he may claim it, we realize he's a liar. Isn't it fascinating then to observe in light of those things this discussion about light and darkness and the nature of one who claims it but doesn't walk according to the light, that's going to lead us to a few questions that we shall strive to answer as we use verse number 7. The very next verse then says, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin." having now discussed a bit about light versus darkness and a bit about the nature of one who may claim to have fellowship with God but not do the truth, we notice that these statements now follow. This is an amazing statement of promise, don't you agree? Notice again as we read it somewhat slowly. If we walk in the light, that has reference to any of us, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, Immediately we observe then that the word he is telling us about the nature of who is identified. If you and I walk in the light as he is in the light, and you may observe readily that that he refers back, of course, to God because he's the one in whom there is all light and not darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Isn't it interesting to contemplate the sweet fellowship that those who, in fact, are faithful to God can enjoy? It's a fellowship predicated, as this verse tells us, on you and me walking in the light. If we don't walk in the light, we can't enjoy the fullness of that fellowship. It may be that there is a sense of social acquaintance that's appreciated, and it may be that there's a sense of neighborly kindness that could be extended the fullness and the greatness of that fellowship hinges on walking in the light. That is it all. He says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and. And 
The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. That's an amazing statement. Maybe one or two final thoughts as that slide closes will prompt us to be ready for those that follow it. Isn't it interesting to contemplate some of the features about the verbs that the Holy Spirit has chosen to use? I've tried to highlight some of them there at the bottom. In the Greek text, though you and I may not be the scholars in Greek that many others in our world might be, it's interesting to notice that indicative is a word that's utilized to describe some of the features of the ancient Greek verbs. In addition, the tense, of course, of the verb is important. And finally, the word is active as it describes the mood of it. Let me try to highlight what all that means. You and I are learning then that the word cleansing as it occurs in this verse is a word that occurs in the indicative mood, in the present tense, in the active voice. That means the action is continuous and ongoing. It's not as if it occurred at one time in the distant past and does not occur any longer. It's continuous, always, constant and ongoing. Let's put that in language like this. That means as long as I'm walking in the light, Jesus' blood cleanses me today just like it will tomorrow and just like it will Tuesday. And yea, many times over the course of a day even, as long as I'm walking in the light and you as well, each of us individually can appreciate the amazing purity that comes from that constant cleansing from the blood of Christ. There are times perhaps when you and I might be led to wonder. So suppose after I was baptized, I died in a car wreck on the way home. And maybe an impure thought crossed my mind prior to my death. Am I now lost? I'm sure many of us have pondered or wondered the intricacies of a circumstance, maybe like that one or something close to it. And yet we have an assurance, an absolute promise and an assurance that leads to an amazing confidence. If we walk in the light, that is to say, the characteristic of whatever's involved in that walking in the light, we have the guarantee of God that the blood of Christ is constantly, thoroughly, and completely cleansing sin. I'm sure as we each think about the condition on which that's based, how do I know if I'm walking in the light or not? What could be said about what's involved in walking in the light? I'm sure then each of us might have an intrigue and an interest in developing that, and we'll use the rest of the lesson tonight to at least make a few comments about it. But again, what does it mean to walk in the light? I'd submit to you that there are four conclusions we'll readily draw. Let's make note of the first one. Might I say we're going to use the book of 1 John really as the guide for all four of these points. Point number one. Have you ever been in discussion with someone who, though at one time a faithful member, that person was baptized for the remission of his or her sins, and for a while, no doubt, lived faithfully unto God? The time came that in discussion with them, they made some statement to you like this. I thought God forgave me. I thought that as I developed and matured in Christ, that I would get to the point where I would no longer succumb to these sins. I no longer fall prey to the temptations and give in to them. And since I keep on doing it, that's got to mean something's wrong. That's got to mean that there's some issue or problem with my life in God and perhaps I was never saved initially. 
let us ask the question, what could be said then about a person who sins? Do you or I sin just though we have been baptized? Do you and I make mistakes? Do we err? One of the first conclusions that you and I might powerfully notice, one who walks in the light should not think that he is able to live a life without sin. Let me say that again. One who is walking in the light should not think that he or she is able to live a life with no sin. That's not going to happen. In fact, let's use the book of 1 John to help us understand that. I would almost immediately point us to verses 8 and 10 of 1 John chapter 1, following immediately with the passage you and I noted just a moment ago. It says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. You'll notice a few times in that trio of verses, John says, if we say we have not sinned, if we say we have no sin, verse number 9, we must confess our sins. The fact remains that even though I was baptized, and even you were too, we are still going to make mistakes. We are still going to do that which we ought not do on occasion. We're still going to leave undone that which God has told us to do. Isn't it true that those things I've tried to highlight, sometimes we use those phrases, sins of commission. That word commission just means I do that which God has told me not to do. God has told me to not use foul language. I slip and do it. I've sinned because I've done what He told me not to do. On the other hand, there are those sins sometimes described as sins of omission. The root word of the word omission is the word omit. I've omitted something that God told me to do. This is a sin of failure. He told me to do something and I failed to do it. That's a sin. Did James say to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not? To him it is sin, James 4.17 might we notice then that even after I'm a Christian, I may do something I shouldn't do or I may leave undone what I ought to be doing. Either one's a sin. Might we also say it's entirely possible to sin by virtue of violating the conscience. There are those matters that are expedient. That is to say, it is a matter of personal judgment. Paul did say in Romans 14, 23, "...for whatsoever is not of faith is sin." If I violate my conscience on a matter that's indifferent, I too have sinned. May we quickly notice then that to walk in the light does not mean that I'm not going to sin. That's not at all what it means. And thus, I shouldn't be discouraged if despite the fact that I have become a member of the body of Christ and yet I still falter and fail, I still make mistakes. Because I make them, I shouldn't think then that I'm not walking in the light. One of the things to conclude, as you and I can well tell, is so many examples in the Scriptures point us to this observation. Paul said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And even Paul himself could affirm, speaking of himself, I am the chiefest of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. When Paul could make references and descriptions of himself in ways like that, maybe it's toward the bottom of that particular slide, 
that brings us to this conclusion. It is interesting, though, that we conclude this. John does have some things to say about a life of sin. Let me ask you to notice a few verses, and I've tried to ask you to notice particularly chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John 3, verse number 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now that statement by its very nature has been a source of some issue and controversy and even personal problem for some. For someone says, I've tried to quit this sin. I have prayed about it and I have tried hard to make it no longer a part of my life. But I slipped back into it. Others will make the statement, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. So there they'll say, there it is. I apparently am not born of God because I'm still sinning. May I submit to you, we better be careful about the tense of the verbs that the Holy Spirit has used. Notice in chapter 3, verse number 9, the verb tense that's there used is one indicative again of an ongoing habitual life of sin. To put that in other language, we might say it like this. The person that's born of God cannot go on committing a habitual, ongoing life of sin. That person understands that God is a God of holiness. When that person obtains the forgiveness of God, that person doesn't desire to go on living in that same kind of a sin in an ongoing basis. He understands that's not possible. Now might we ask, that verse by the tense of the verb that's used doesn't have anything to say about those slip-ups, those particular mistakes or sins you and I make in which it's not an ongoing thing. Do you or I slip up? Sure we do. Do we make those decisions on a daily basis that were not planned or predicated, but they're not in keeping with God's law? What he's talking about there is an ongoing habitual life of sin. And if you and I are born of God, we cannot, we cannot make that kind of a life and expect God to be pleased with it. Other verses that in fact teach us something like that, notice chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And ye know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in Him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen Him, neither known Him. That same kind of verb now appears. Whosoever abides in Him sins not. It doesn't mean you're not going to make your mistakes or you're not going to make those slip-ups, but it means you cannot live an ongoing habitual life of sin because if so, you're not born of God. And you're not in Christ. Maybe it is with that in mind we notice chapter 5 verse 18 near the close of the book. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. There's a significance to that word keepeth. That's an ongoing vigilance in which you and I day by day on watch the nature of our life. We don't live carelessly. We live always watchful, knowing the devil is there. And we strive to keep ourselves in that love of God. It would seem then that we've learned a great deal already about what it means to walk in the light. It doesn't mean I'm going to be sinlessly perfect by my own volition. I'll still make my mistakes, and so too will you. But there are more lessons to be learned about what it means to walk in the light. Let's look at another one. The second one that we might well appreciate is this one. We shouldn't go too far with this statement that we've just made. 
we said that walking in the light does not mean it'll be a life without sin. But we've just made some comments about that habitual sin. Notice how John makes these statements. To walk in the light is a life of abiding obedience. How do we appreciate that from the very text of the book? May I direct your attention, if I might, to chapter 3, verse 22, almost immediately. Chapter 3, verse number 22. It is on that occasion we read, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. You may notice one of the privileges that you and I have is, of course, that of prayer. And it says, Whatever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments. Now, as you and I think about keeping His commandments, notice that particular statement that is attached to that promise. We receive what we ask of Him, but that goes along with the fact that we keep His commandments. We can't set aside the keeping of His commandments. That is to say, we can't excuse our sin. May I suggest that's the other side of that same pendulum that we mustn't go that far. Just because we say, well, God doesn't expect me to be perfect, that's no excuse for me to try to excuse my sins. God does expect me to abide in His obedience. He does expect all of us then to be faithful to that. It is with that in mind, may I point us back to chapter number 2, verse 24. An amazingly penetrating passage. On this occasion, John wrote, Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. Might we ask, what is it they had heard from the beginning? He had just stated earlier in that chapter, it was the truth that had been bequeathed to them through the nature of God's revelation. It was the truth. John was encouraging them to abide in it. And that word abide means to sustain in it, to keep on in it, to be faithful to it. But that verse isn't finished, for he says, If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you... Ye also shall continue in the Son and the Father. Thus to walk in the light is to constantly walk in the blessedness of the commandments of the Lord, striving day by day to be faithful to them in every way. Aren't you and I encouraged to bring every thought into captivity to Christ? 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5. Isn't it true we're admonished to then allow even our thoughts to be made over into what the Lord would find pleasing? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. Aren't we reminded in Colossians 1.27 that Christ in you the hope of glory. You and I as Christians are to in fact strive each day to develop, mature, and grow so that Christ is made over in a sense in us. We're reminded more than once that when others look at us, they should see the basic nature of the death of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, we're reminded on that occasion that we are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Christ might be made manifest in us. That's a great challenge, isn't it? That kind of growth and development and challenge brings us then to notice that's what it means to dwell in God. Look at verse 24 of 1 John 3. Closing verse to that third chapter And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him. So what does it mean to walk in the light? It means, of course, to dwell in his commandments. It means to be faithful and to strive to be faithful to them. As we've just learned earlier, it will not mean that I'll keep them perfectly, but I'll try. 
It doesn't mean that I will do it without mistake, but I certainly will give it my best effort. And we'll never try to excuse our failures. So far, these two things we've learned. Interesting about what it means to walk in the light, isn't it? As you can see near the bottom, what else might we conclude about this walking in the light? May I ask you to consider chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. As John delivered these truths to those individuals of the long ago, we notice in this pair of verses, he says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We can next then make observation that to walk in the light is in fact a life of love. It's motivated by the love God had for us, and it manifests itself in the love for others. How can you and I see John telling us that? I would ask you to notice, first, he highlights God's love for us. You'll notice that we just read about it. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a fancy-sounding word. It means something very simple. It means atoning sacrifice. Christ was the atoning sacrifice for Randy Bybee's sins and for yours too. And that's how God manifested His love to me. He sent His Son to die for me. And when that Son died for me, it's through Him, you'll notice again verses 9 and 10, that you and I can appreciate the opportunity to live. That's genuinely amazing, isn't it? That amazement perhaps also leads us to appreciate verse number 19 of this same chapter. There you'll notice, we love Him because He first loved us. It is true that as God loved us, it recalls to our mind immediately Romans 5 verse 8, doesn't it? God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet that love that He has extended toward us, you and I strive to reciprocate. And we start by loving Him. We love Him because He first loved us. Jesus on one occasion when He was asked, What's the greatest of the commandments? In Mark 12 verse number 30, He answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. That love then that you and I feel for God and toward Him is a love John frequently mentioned in this book. We do love Him, don't we? And that's why we keep His commandments. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous, 1 John 5, 3. That love then that you and I feel for God immediately leads, of course, to its manifestation in these other ways. I would ask you to notice, that means we do not love the world. That's included in this same book, isn't it? Though the world offers its enticements and it offers its allurements, it offers, of course, its temptations. You and I know that for those that are the saved of God, for those who are walking in the light, we do not love the world. It's stated as, a, as an exact commandment, isn't it? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
1 John 2, 15 to 17. The nature of that love then that's not for the world. Maybe it highlights in what some would consider one of the high pinnacles of the book. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Did you note with me then that our love for God leads to our love for others? Verse 7, let us love one another. Often we pray in our public prayers, and we're thankful for the love that's experienced here at the Pippin Congregation, and we're thankful for the manifestation of it and the impression that it leads to those that visit with us. May we always be thankful and continue to develop and to make sure it matures and grows. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because God is love. We're not loving simply as a credit to ourselves. We're not loving simply as an alternate way of accomplishing other matters. We love because that's God's nature. And we wish, of course, to manifest the love He has shown to us. Beloved, let us love one another. That love that we see here is one of the ways that we know we're walking in the light. If we don't have love for the brethren, John will say it like this later in chapter 4. Might I ask you to notice the language of verse number 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother... He is a liar. Now John will use that word liar pretty often in this book, and every time it's a stirring thing. Nobody likes to be called a liar. It's troubling when someone to your face says, you are lying. I'm sure that none of us feel that because we tell the truth. But when others don't believe us or when they are perturbed by something we've said and they insinuate that we're lying, it's a very unsettling thing. The Holy Spirit says, I'm telling you. That person who claims to love God but yet hates his brother is lying. He really doesn't love God. You and I then appreciate that love that, of course, we feel for our brethren. How often does the New Testament speak about brotherly love? It was one of the Christian graces mentioned in 2 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, isn't it? Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and godliness. And you'll notice to that list, he adds brotherly kindness. That is brotherly love. Maybe it's in light of that fact. We appreciate, finally, verse 21. 1 John 4, 21. This commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. It's a commandment then, isn't it? We don't wonder if it's important or not. God has commanded it. How lovingly then we seek to love our brethren. Jesus even augmented that with some other statements. We're even to love our enemies, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Maybe it's in light of that one last observation. Chapter 3, verse 11. Notice how love here is described by the apostle. 1 John 3, 11, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You'll notice that though it might require another lesson to develop it, the next verse goes on to say, Don't love like Cain did. Now, Cain killed his brothers, as you and I each remember, and that wasn't a lot of love, was it? And yet we notice here we're not told to love like Cain, but we're to have a far more powerful and deep-seated and meaningful kind of love than that. Surely, as we come to the closing point of the lesson, there's one more thing that we might observe. 
To walk in the light is a life of love, to be sure. And it's a life of abiding obedience. And it's a life wherein we understand there will be sins and mistakes, but they're not habitual. There's one final thing that John would wish for us to understand. To walk in the light is a life of joy. It's a life of joy. As you and I develop that, might we never forget, what's the purpose of the book of 1 John? Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. Why did John write the book? Among other reasons, these things write we unto you. Why, John, that your joy may be full? The Holy Spirit said to those readers to whom that book was written, I want you to know joy. I want you to know the deep-seated nature of joy. Maybe in light of that, notice chapter 3, verse 8. What reason do you and I as Christians have to be so joyful? He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that great news? You and I serve one who has defeated him, destroyed him, absolutely eliminated the ultimate and final victory that he might have over so many but not us. In addition to 1 John 3, 8, Note then the blessing of confidence you and I have because of this and the joy that it brings. Aren't you thankful that during the course of a day, be it early in the morning or late at night, you can petition the God of heaven and feel confidence that He hears you? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to second guess the fact, does God hear me or not? Look at chapter 5 verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. That's good news. You and I know that we can pray to the God of heaven, and His power is sufficient to bring about whatever we ask, as long as it's in keeping with His will. Maybe it's in light of that we can notice this. There's great victory that is associated with you and me. Chapter 4, verse number 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who among us would question that there appears to be great influence and power in the world, and it's so abundant, and yet the assertion is that he that's in you, Christian, is greater than he that's in the world. May we never forget that. That should bring us great joy. Turn over one chapter, chapter 5, verse 4. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. That person who walks by faith, walking in the light. No condemnation to that person, Romans 8, verse 1. And to that individual who walks in the light, we've seen the impressiveness of the promise of prayer. And now we've seen the victory that's promised to us. Maybe in light of that victory, you'll notice, of course, the final victory and how sweet it is. Chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. Whatever happens here, we know that there is, of course, the eternal life that awaits the faithful. But it's, of course, to those who walk in the light, because they're the ones who, who are cleansed from sin... It's to those who are abiding, of course, in the nature of what we've discussed tonight. I would ask that as we close that particular slide, chapter 5, verse 13 says it like this. 
These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Know that ye have eternal life. Some might wonder, am I saved eternally? Is there a way to know? John says there is. It's predicated on walking in the light. Are you walking in the light tonight? This conclusion slide will attempt to very briefly summarize the things that you and I have seen. 1 John 5, 3 says, To those that walk in the light, Christ's blood cleanses them from sin. And it does it always in an ongoing way. The question then that is so meaningful is, Am I walking in the light and are you? It doesn't mean that we'll be able to live a life with no sin at all. But it does mean we have an advocate with the Father. And when we do sin, His blood cleanses us from that sin when we walk in the light. And it means, of course, that we enjoy a life of joy. It's a life predicated on love. And it's a life that's motivated by an abiding obedience. If tonight you are not obedient to the gospel, why do you delay? At this point, I hope you can conclude that if Christ's blood is not cleansing you, you're lost. You are not in the right relationship with God and you need to make amends to that tonight. A gospel invitation is, of course, extended to anyone here. If you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, please think urgently of your situation. Don't you want to have a life of joy and a life of forgiveness? And don't you want to have a life to which eternal life is its promise? If we could help you in that way tonight, the waters of baptism are prepared. You need to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins and confess His name and then be baptized. If we could assist you in that way, we'd be happy and we'd rejoice in so doing. However, you'd be the one that's far happier and you'd be the one that'd be able to truly and genuinely rejoice. If you have known a life of faithfulness and you've known what it was like to walk in the light and you knew what it was like to have sins forgiven in an ongoing way, but that seems like a distant memory. It seems like it was far, far ago and you'd like to know that again. You realize that for sins that are of public nature, come before others confessing them and making repentance of them and beg them to pray to God for you and God's promise to hear and forgive. If tonight we could be of assistance to you in that way, we'd be happy to do it. Let us use 1 John 1, 7 as a motivation if we walk in the light. As He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If you'd like to know that blessing, why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing.